Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us and feel free to leave us feedback. My guest today is Brennan Schluter. Brennan has spent a decade building brands at the intersection of innovation and culture, including Jordan, Robinhood, Amazon Music, and most recently, head of marketing at Web3 company Rabbit Hole. He co-founded Web3 marketing community Jump. After a decade of investing in crypto, he's excited to see the expansion of the technology to bring in the next generation of crypto users via Web3 brands. LFG, baby, let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Brennan. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, man, I, uh, I found you through uh, an amazing tweet about your experience at Rabbit Hole and it was very serendipitous in its timing. I um, I have been thinking about how to pivot the podcast in a way that appeals to a specific audience. Uh, and one of the problems I landed on was this huge issue of perception in Web3. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, what better way than to tackle that by speaking to some of the best marketers in Web3. Um, so I'm glad you're on the show, man. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I typically start these uh, podcasts off letting the audience get to know you a little bit better. So um, doesn't have to Great. be Web3, but like, what's your founding story? Uh, my founding story is really what you were just hitting on is uh, more about understanding the role of brands in culture, understanding how they integrate into people's lives. Um, I've been a, a, a student of advertising since I was a, a little boy, uh, watching commercials in between cartoons and wondering like, why do these exist? What are they trying to do? What's, what, what are they selling me? And are they doing a good job of it? That was something that I started to do at a young age. I became like a, like an advertising critic. Um, and <laughs> my mom would just be like, why do you care so much? And I'd be like, well, it's wasting my time if it's not good. So I think my founding story starts there, starting to understand like these, these, opportunities that brands have to be creative forces in people's lives while driving business results. Um, I live in between, in between that, that area, but my curiosity doesn't just stop with advertising. It also has a lot to do with technology as well. So not only thinking about how brands fit into people's lives, but how technology does too. Um, so I went through uh, 10 years in, in advertising agencies, helping build Brands like Nike, Jordan, Amazon Music, Robinhood, Chick-fil-A, Home Depot. Um, had a long career doing digital strategy and brand strategy um, 
for, for those brands, helping them think about how do you enter the digital space in a way that actually makes sense. So immediately my, my role in my career, I op- identified that opportunity of like, where does technology and brands intersect? Um, meanwhile, through that time, uh, I also started finding out about crypto. Um, my friends tell me that I was talking about telling them about Bitcoin in 2010. And I started investing in Bitcoin in 2013 was when I first bought my uh, first Bitcoin. And uh, in order to buy my first Bitcoin, the way that it was done back then was you wired money. So I went to a Western Union in a Walmart in (laughs) Dallas and wired money to Japan. And my first Bitcoin that I ever bought was on uh, Mt. Gox, the infamous Mt. Gox exchange that uh, um, went under um, a few years later. Luckily, I was able to transfer my Bitcoin out of that wallet and into a uh, into my own, which was a cool first transaction was getting out of there before it all, all crumbled. But a, a big thing for me, I've been the crypto guy at every agency that I worked worked uh, at since 2013. Um, talking about crypto, what the potentials are, uh, the beauty of the uh, of the technology and what it can start to unlock. But I never really saw the cultural impact of what it could bring. I saw kind of, you know, I thought about what, where we could go with crypto, um, but it wasn't until 2020 when, um, you know, we were hitting DeFi summer and uh, starting to see the advent of NFTs um, which in 2017, I know like Crypto Kitties, I had a few of those and a, a now gone wallet. I don't know what, where any of those things are, but uh, really starting to see the crossover into uh, mainstream culture was where I was like, okay, now is the time where brand building is going to be really important. Um, my buddy, Jeff Kaufman, uh, recognized that as well. And we started a community called Jump, uh, which is all about Web3 marketers um, entering the space. Uh, but then in March 2021, I left my agency. I went full time into Web3 and started consulting, uh, helped build brands in Web3, helped develop my own products and NFT drops. And um, and then also through some events, helped help throw some parties. But in that time frame, I, I worked with a lot of really interesting brands, one of which was uh, Rabbit Hole um, and started working with them on a project basis. And then in November uh, decided to join them full time and be their head of marketing, um, which I have been for the past past year up until about a couple of weeks ago, where now I'm starting to look for um, my next role in in helping bring another brand into into the cultural zeitgeist and find out exactly where uh, all of that fits. I'm still super passionate about Web3, uh, excited about the opportunities in front of us. I've also, as I've just kind of outlined, been through a bunch of cycles in this market. So the price changes don't change where we're going. Um, so I'm excited about all of that. And uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's great, man. I appreciate you, cha- you sharing that. I, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, so I'm going to start with trying to align your experience. And I'd love to hear, I under, it sounds like you had a very analytical mind at a young age, if you're watching the ads and, and, and thinking about yeah. them in that way. Most other people were like, can I buy that? Can I buy that? And you're thinking mm-hmm. like, why should I pay attention? To exactly. Um, what, 
what it, how, what was your philosophy when you first realized you could have a philosophy about the intersection of brand and culture and narrative that you're speaking about? And then how has that evolved as you've gone through web two, I guess we could call it, but non web three ventures and then into web three? Yeah. So I think where my perspective started even before I knew really what advertising was, was realizing that there is two parties to this communication. There's a, there's a company who has a motive and then an audience who is being presented with said motive. And in between that space is where good brands are built. It's built on empathy. It's built on curiosity about the person that's listening to whatever you're trying to sell them. Um, and it's about courage to do something unique that stands out. Those are kind of my three principles. That's uh, That has been better defined over the past few years, uh, but it hasn't really been uh, uh, how it started. It started out with just thinking like, why are brands talking to me right now? What are they trying to sell me? How am I going to understand what it is they're trying to sell? Are they doing a good job of it? Um, and then when I started to realize the the nuts and bolts of what goes into a marketing campaign and understanding uh, that relationship that I just mentioned a little bit better, that's where I started to define it a bit more as an empathetic uh, relationship that that you really start to start to focus on. I mean, my entire career has been focused on um, thinking about the end user. Like, you know, I try to keep the end user in mind and I try to reach them in creative ways. That's how my philosophy kind of boils down. Um, and when it, you go through web two, you have a lot of uh, traditional goals and KPIs um, that brands hadn't been used to changing for a long time. Um, but when you started to introduce things like social media and, and you started to understand more about community building or always on communication, um, it really changed the relationship between brands. Um, so that was a big shift that I saw as an opportunity to kind of put my focus into as someone who loved the internet, who loved internet culture. Um, I was able to help find that, that empathy between internet users and brands. Um, as we start to think about web three, uh, the incentive structure starts to shift a little bit more. Brands held a lot of power in early web two. It was kind of just like a shouting at you. And in the same way that TV and radio was, it's like, you're going to hear this. There is no talk back. Right. Web, web two became evolved to be more of a conversation where, you know, brands had to meet users in the middle somewhere so that their incentives aligned they're having a conversation they both want to have and that turns into you know follows engagement etc web3 we build on it even more where the power completely shifts where all of a sudden you have people who are board members of these brands that then are telling the story for the brand and become such a core aspect of the brand that you can't discern between the two so i think it's really interesting to start to think about how ownership plays plays a big role in the next phase of branding. Um, I think you see it a lot with, with a lot of NFT projects um, like Board Ape or Doodles um, or Cool Cats. People's identities are wrapped up in, in the brand itself, um, almost that so you can't tell the difference. Um, and I, I, I think it's really clear with those because of the cultural impact that it's had. It's, a, it's a, you know great art. It's like strong communities. 
that sort of thing. I'm not sure what that looks like yet for a brand that's trying to sell something that's a little bit more traditional, like uh, consumer packaged goods or, um, or some sort of software as a service. Uh, I think that we're still trying to figure that part out. And that's an interesting <laughs> challenge to solve. It is. I keep thinking of SaaS PFPs. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Dude, it's gonna. It'll happen. Like, think about how the. I think one of the best examples of this are projects like DUIDX having hedges. You know, like that's pretty close to what we're talking about, where it's a membership as a part of using this tool that then is unlocking even more benefits. You know, it's like paying for LinkedIn Premium, but having skin in the game uh, on the upside being able to use the the solution. It's like, I think in the past, at least in my experience, I have some experience in B2B SaaS sales and, and legal side. And you always had a community, right? But like, it always felt kind of forced, right? It was kind of like, right. uh, hey, if I can help you better your career, maybe you get certified in my product. And then you become, you know, you join these like active, you know, message boards that we have somewhere. And like, you might talk to each other, but there's always just kind of like tension, between the brand and the community. Now right. in Web3, the brand is the community. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that tension is is interesting that you bring up because going back, it's like the tension is about, okay, what are your motives here? Like it's it's incentive alignment, it's unclear motives on like, well, why are you wanting to get me involved in this way? Everything feels like a veiled sales pitch. But when you own the brand by owning NFTs, the the engagement feels much lighter. We see it in in the jump community that we started, um, even without like we do have an NFT membership pass, but we also have uh, a jump token, which is not a liquid token, but is used to, to like tip people. Um, and just as they engage, as they share something valuable, we have these jump tokens. And even that little bit of incentive has made people immediately jump into action and start to work on different solutions that the community might need because they feel ownership of it. They feel the power. And I mean, honestly, that's exactly why we created jump was so that we had this sandbox for people who are getting into web three and our marketers to come and try different strategies to practice with, you know, token gated discords and NFT launch mechanics and token tokenomics if if you say that but um but yeah it's it's interesting to see how the how when you start to align motives and the incentives are clear for participation there's a there's a psychological switch that happens with people where it's less like what you were just saying where oh what are you trying to sell me by by giving me this free course or like taking me out to dinner like everybody knows there's like a there's a, there's a show at the end of this that, that you have to sit through. It's like a, um, it's like the timeshare sales pitch at the end of staying at a, at a resort, you know, but, <laughs> but with, but with web three and the, the way that we've already seen it start to play out, people immediately go, Oh, the whole thing, I don't need to be sold on anything. I'm already in, I'm an owner. You're pitching me as an owner to participate more as a board member um, as a key investor, like that's, that's a, a big change in how people see the communities they participate in. And, uh, we've seen it already. Yeah. That's interesting. So let's talk, uh, so jump, 
Um, give us give us the high level on jump. I, I kind of have a good idea for what it is, but let's explain it to the audience because I do want to get into the uh, idea of of tokens as a way of building someone's credibility. I think that's a really good use case for Web three. Yeah, totally. Um, the the simple way is uh, to describe it as jump is a network of marketers who are interested in getting into Web three. Um, we're not an agency. Uh, you think you can think of Jump as more of like a a large organization who helps guide marketers through the space in a, in a similar way that uh, in early Web two there were lots of organizations that popped up to help marketers navigate um, new technology across social media, across uh, display ad networks, like all of those things that were discussed throughout Web two. There were organizing bodies that helped guide marketers through it, provided you know, best in class <clears throat> thinking on, on how to, how to use it. Uh, but one thing that we're doing that's a little different than that is we're putting it into practice. So jump is a way that you actually join this web three community for marketers and you learn by doing, you are actually putting it in, into practice as soon as you join the community and, you know, hopefully minting your first NFT with us is sort of a, a goal with us. Cause we have, uh, um, Sky Club membership passes, which unlock a, a whole other aspect of uh, of our community, and we'll do more even down down the road. Um, so we've created a a there's a newsletter that comes out every week, written by Jeff Kaufman, um, who is a an old friend of mine who in 2013 told me I was crazy for investing in Bitcoin, but then in 2020 <laughs> in 2020 he called me and was like, Hey, I'm getting into uh, web three, I'm curious about this. And I was like, tell me more, tell me where your head's at and let me help you build it. And so that's how jump was born. He went in, went through seed club, um, got a, a ton of learnings. I always use the analogy that it was like, uh, when he was going through seed club, it was like having an older brother who was the first to go to college and like calling him and getting updates and saying like, what'd you learn? What'd you learn this week? Um, <laughs> And, and so we're really proud about the way that that jump has grown. We did it in a very, very uh, surgical way, though. It wasn't just an open invitation. Jeff has personally interviewed everyone who's come through jumps doors. So there's a personal connection there. The onboarding flow was kind of the first of its kind to do it that way. And because mm -hmm. of that, we've got a, a um, incredible network of people, which is the real reason why we did it. Um, uh, that are interested in Web3, involved in what we're doing, helping run weekly events. We have a creative team. We have creative director. Um, all of these people who have just stepped up and said, I want to help to build this. That's awesome. So just just to kind of press on that a little bit, one of the, I guess, uh, criticisms of Web3 and, and NFTs and all of that is, while it does provide an incentive for you to act in a certain way and to promote the brand in a certain way, it's it's mostly financial. Right. Um, yeah. And so what you get is like anybody who is speculating jumps in. Right. And they may not actually contribute. Right. They're just waiting totally. for other people to do. But the shift that has happened as a result of this massive bear market has been curated communities. And when you tell me that every single person is actually interviewed, I don't. Is there a financial cost associated with joining jump? There's not to join, but to mint a Sky Club, it's 0 0.05 ETH. So negligible in, in right. a sense, right? Right. Um, but just 
to show people what a transaction is like. And I'm sure that funds something, maybe it's your tech costs, who knows? Um, but either way, if you're going through the interview process, even if there is, we'll call it a 0.5 ETH, right? Like even if you, if you changed it to that, right? It's about bringing people into the community that are actually going to contribute in a meaningful way. And by going through that interview process, it shows they're taking it seriously. Exactly. So, yeah. So That's what is exactly once, right. So when you say people can come in there, it sounds like the mission really is to like bridge that gap between web two marketing and web three marketing. Is that absolutely, fair? absolutely. These are, these are all marketing professionals who have uh, an existing career in marketing um, and are making the transition into thinking about how does this impact their strategies uh, moving forward. Um, but we also have, you know, founders, more web three, experienced people who are also a part of it to help balance out the conversation. Um, and people have started to connect in ways that like we didn't really intend, like, you know, started to do an, ins there's an in search of channel where people are, are looking for resources in the community. Um, we've partnered with a couple uh, other communities that are all about resourcing as well and finding more opportunities for, for people to get involved. So um, that's been that's been great. Something I want to mention, though, that that uh, I want to hit on that you mentioned is um, about speculation. Um, there's there's an innate aspect of speculation across Web3 because it's the the engagement is directly tied in to some sort of monetary value. Ownership begets speculation like that's just going to happen. However, um, Within our community, especially, we're we're not seeing anyone flipping their Sky Club NFTs. They're holding strong, and we also recognize that we we can't expect a um, hundred percent of everyone's time all the time. There are some people who step up and and for a, a few weeks or a few months are are super involved, but then work gets busy, and they have to jump in. Life gets busy. They need to do other things. And that's perfectly fine, having the flexibility and recognizing the flexibility of building a community and what it takes to do that with people who have uh, lives to live. Um, we're very aware of that. And we try not to um, impede on that in, in any way. So there's a, there's a bit of speculation throughout any community where you start to tie in any type of monetary value. Uh, however, if you, if you understand that, you don't try to fight speculation but you actually work with it, you can, you can find some great people to build with and realize that speculation drives markets and there's going to need to be a bit of that in order to power the entire ecosystem. Right. It's not, it's not all bad, right? Um, yeah. It's only, only when it leads to euphoria and uh, uh, that's five, right. 500 X returns. Maybe, maybe there's something we need to consider in terms of real value delivered versus speculative value, right? Like maybe the multiples need to contract if you will. Exactly. And we, you know, at my time at rabbit hole, we saw that quite a bit. Um, there was, there were moments where uh, it still happens today where um, people start to look for an airdrop and they'll do whatever it takes to uh, farm for that airdrop. So what that means is that they're, engaging with the platform, engaging with tweets, sending through nonsensical Discord messages, thinking that it's all part of some sort of algorithm that's going to get them a larger airdrop if there is an airdrop. Well, because of that, we decided to come out point blank and say there will never be an airdrop 
because it was creating all of this activity that we didn't think matched our mission. So we had to come out and take a stance against airdrops, which also, if you look at the data, aren't exactly an effective way of gaining owners of a platform, like ENS airdrop, for example, um, a huge airdrop, lots of people got lots of tokens. Yeah. And then me included for the audience right. that's listening. <laughs> and, and, and then if you see that what happened in the, in the following weeks and months, the token was completely sold off. Like it, it went up for a little bit because people were buying into it. They saw the airdrop happening. They wanted to get involved, but then the speculative bu bubble burst. And then all of a sudden you don't have as many token holders anymore. What What's important about an airdrop and what, the the objective is for a lot of these brands it's a marketing tactic to bring in more people into their ecosystem to be owners and understand that they have voting power that becomes a big a big aspect of these de decentralized communities because that's how they not only fund but also distribute capital in their treasury they need people involved to actually be able to push some of these things forward um, decentralization is good for these communities, more voices, more perspectives, diverse opinions, all of those things are, are great. But what happens when you have an airdrop and a massive sell-off is that actually a lot of this starts to consolidate. You start to see people who are holding lots of delegation power. You see people who are buying up tokens that then all of a sudden the largest holders are, are completely dwarfing the smallest ones and your token price is crushed. So, um, a quick aside on, on my perspective on, on airdrops as a marketing tactic. It's a dangerous one. It's, it's worked for some projects, for, but from my perspective overall, it, it hasn't uh, worked, worked great. And, and that rabbit hole, what we were doing was creating new ways to distribute tokens to people who have proven that they are um, verified through a number of, of different tools, um, credentialized by completing certain tasks and then they were able to start to get some some of your tokens when they passed those those two gates. So because of that, to bring this back to marketing, we didn't like airdrops. We thought they weren't doing uh, things that we we thought that the community needed. Um, <clears throat> we had a product that helped distribute tokens that wasn't airdrop in an airdrop function, and so we started a, a campaign basically to be anti airdrop. It became a core principle of our brand. We were anti-airdrop in the way that we talked about it with some pretty strict language, like there will never be an airdrop. It's a kind of written as a manifesto. It pissed some people off because they're airdrop farmers. They wanted the airdrop. They still want the airdrop. They still don't really believe us that there's not going to be an airdrop. Those, those are what we call the wind mooners. <laughs> moon boys, yeah, exactly. <laughs> moon boys. But then we also took that opportunity when I was at a, um, NFT NYC, we created a um, an anti-airdrop airdrop, uh, tactic where we were actually, we said, uh, airdrops are killing web three in a nice graphic. And then, uh, using the iOS airdrop, we were airdropping that to people. So people were kind of getting this airdrop of an anti-airdrop message, just strengthening our brand even more. And we, we got written up by, um, decrypt on, on that as well, just because it captured so many people's attention in this sort of like spark moment that made them go oh okay fucking clever <laughs> and that was the point like yeah. and and to to wrap this up in a long-winded way 
that's the type of marketing that I really enjoy seeing more brands start to recognize is like, there's this cultural movement of airdrops. There's this motivation from users to get rich quick. And then where did our brand rabbit hole fit in that? And how do we create this, this creative way of telling people how we feel about it that can get their attention and stick in their heads um, when they start to think about who we are, what we stand for. And it was one piece of uh, the puzzle that starts to build out the mosaic of what a brand is. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It's just the words that keep popping into my head are progressive decentralization. Uh, that's a good one. I, I think that that's a huge problem to solve. And, and uh, the, the rabbit hole team is on that path to figure that out. Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a the first time I ever heard it. I think I don't know. You could say he coined the term, but Jesse Walden wrote a paper uh, called "Progressive Decentralization" when he was at A16Z Crypto, and it it makes sense. I mean, every brand is a startup to begin with, right? Like you don't just become a brand. You're like I'm fully decentralized, right? Like I don't yeah, think that right. ever worked um, because no decisions can get made if you just have a bunch of random people in a room and decisions like really important decisions early on are what's going to drive the brand adoption and get grow the community and do all of that. So what he basically exactly. says in a nutshell is find product market fit, just like you would with a normal brand. Once yeah. you've done that, find contributors, which is exactly what you guys were doing. Find the contributors that want to continue contributing that can contribute more so than just sitting in discord and, you know, shit posting on Twitter um, and then reward those people first. Right. And if you still want to do an airdrop to the community at some point, just to show some appreciation, then maybe it makes sense. But the real right. governance of, of the company that that value, like it still has to be earned. Right. hundred percent. hundred percent. We actually went through that experience at my time at rabbit hole as well, where we were starting to think about, decentralization. There was content pods. Uh, there was design pods. There was a meta governance pod, which was ahead of its time. Very interesting concept. Yeah. But what we found as a small team was that we then had um, lots of very involved contributors, but we hadn't solved the business problem yet. And by trying to manage both a decentralized community and solve the business problem and where we fit in that, we found ourselves kind of dealing with two businesses. Um, and so we decided to shutter the uh, decentralized working groups um, for the time being so that we can make some of those solutions happen for the business and then decide how it decentralizes after we've done that. So we're not trying to fight on two fronts or build on two fronts is a better way to say that. It makes sense. It's like starting starting a a company and then creating sub DAOs over time. Exactly. Right? When it exactly. when it makes sense. Let's let's you know. Uh, one of the examples that comes to mind from a former guest is uh, Clive Henry. He was uh, he's at Adobe, but he also is a member of Krause House DAO. Oh right. Uh, and um, they you know have this mission. They sold off these NFTs. They raised a bunch of money, millions of dollars, to have a goal at some point to purchase an NBA team. And you know it's very easy to criticize that goal, right? To say how could a decentralized community possibly do it? But they didn't just up and say everybody that bought an NFT. Guess what? We're going to go buy you know the Charlotte Bobcats or whatever. They started to see how they could interact with 
non-MBA teams and other exactly. teams across seas. And so they formed this sub-DAO that I, I think Clive is the head of. I'm not sure, but I know he's very involved. Uh, and they're basically forming partnerships with these European teams. And these, P- these European teams are leveraging the Web3 knowledge of the Kraushaus team to you know run unique marketing campaigns and to create a unique brand right where other teams have no idea what an nft is or crypto or coins or anything like that yeah i mean they also uh they also i think maybe not bought maybe it was bought the big three team they bought a big three team so that's pretty yeah i think it was bought maybe they're like a, a majority owner or something like that but um, but yeah, you talk to flex, uh, they're going to buy an, an NBA team. It, it's going to happen one day. Um, and they're working their way to it, which I also think is like a really smart way that they were able to, to approach this problem. It wasn't just like, uh, you know, in, in, as an example, the constitution DAO just like raised enough money to buy the constitution when that didn't work, they had no backup plan. Right. Yeah. But what Kraushaus is doing is. They've got a mission that they're on. They have a vision of buying an NBA team, of owning an NBA team one day. But instead of just saying, like, refund the money, like, we're not going to do that, they're building to that goal. They're taking little steps to get there, just like, you know, a business would. Um, yeah. Where That's where I think going back to our previous conversation, going from decentralized to a centralized entity in that way, Um they're doing it in the opposite direction, which I think also works really well. Yeah, it uh, reminds me of the the biology uh, centralized, decentralized, recentralized kind of yeah, thing, where, where exactly. certain things are better off centralized. You got to figure out what those are, it, but but even to get to that point, right? Like you got to got to got to decentralize in the right way. And what what I hear when you when we're talking about uh, Crosshouse is I hear uh, someone just building a resume. Basically, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm building credibility as as Krausehouse that I know basketball and that we have people here that know basketball. So that at some point, if it is actually financially feasible, uh, and, and and some owner wants to share ownership in a team, um, they're going to be able to say, "Look what we did here! Look what we bought here! Exactly. Look what we, did. you know." And we executed on this stuff. This wasn't yeah. just a bunch of NBA junkies getting together and fantasy basketball wasn't enough, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the NBA is going to have to approve this too. So they're going to have to show their, their due diligence. Like, do you guys actually know what it takes to have partial or complete ownership of a team? And have you proven that this decentralized organization can function properly? Cause the NBA is not going to take chances on that. There's no, there's no reason for them to, they like, we know how to make this work without a decentralized organization. So why would we allow a decentralized organization that doesn't have their shit figured out to do this? Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I the, the numbers that come to mind is uh, I was listening to a podcast with Rohan, the, the founder of uh, Flow Blockchain. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows their relationship with the NBA. NBA Top Shots has onboarded, right. I think, more users than any other blockchain. They don't get a lot of credibility for that from the Web3 community because they, you know, people use credit cards and sign yeah. up with Google well, and Walled gardens. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But like they're building a blockchain for the mainstream and they're okay with that. And they're doing it slowly and they're slowly decentralizing. Right. Um, but what one of the, the stats that he, he brought up on, on his podcast was there is a million people who own 
a million wallets who own NBA top shots. There's a billion NBA fans. Yeah. Right. <laughs> how do we, how do we meet somewhere in the middle? Right. And like, yeah. it doesn't seem infeasible to do that in my opinion, like to get to that point, right? Like if there, if a sixth of the world pays attention to the NBA in some way, shape or form, what's, what's a top shot? What, what's, what's a unique game experience mean to them if they have to purchase an NFT to get it right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be very cool to see. So this, this kind of brings us to a very good question that I had for you, which is now that we know your philosophy and how it's changed over time and how it's a lot, a lot of it evolves around the fact that the, the community is now the brand. What are like the web three brands that you're watching and why? Um, I'm keeping my eyes peeled. I don't have like standout brands per se. I think the the interesting point right now is that a lot of people are starting to find their way, find their voice um, and, and explore different, different methods of brand building. Um, I'd say that a lot of the NFT projects are interesting to me because once again, how I'm defining a brand isn't just like, a product or a company, it's the relationship that they're building with the people who use their, their product or services. Um, I really think that there have been a lot of brands that have leaned into their products specifically to build that brand. So like Rainbow, for example, beautiful design is sort of the brand. Um, and then you know, a lot of brands also use their founders or their core team members to help support that brand, which I think is a is a fine tactic in these these days. Like uh, the same way that you just mentioned, like the community is the brand. Well, the community is also the people building the brand. So to be able to lean on like lead designer, founder for perspective is, is really important. Um, I'd also point to uh, a brand like Doodles which I think has done a, a really nice job of narrative storytelling um, in their brand. That is a lot, a lot less focused on, on, uh, on product. I think it's a, much more of like, we're here to make the world smile. And that's what they've been doing through events, um, through some of the video content that they've put out, um, has done really well there. Uh, another big brand that sticks out to me when I start to think about brands, uh, Bankless. Um, Bankless has done a really nice job of sticking to their mission, um, you know, and, and becoming a media company in the process. Uh, and beyond that, starting to think about, you know, their partnerships like uh, IndexCoop um, and actual DeFi products that have the Bankless name on it. But it all boils down to trying to get more people to realize that they have they can have full control over their finances without relying on traditional finance options. Um, I think those have been sort of, if I was to talk about three that stick out right now, those probably do it for me. But I think what's so early in, in people even understanding what a brand is, uh, a lot of the conversations that I have right now, um, you know, there's a misconception about what a brand is is and how to talk about it. A lot of founders spend a ton of time with more like um, product marketing efforts that are like, here's what I built. Here's what I built. Here's what I built. 
here's a release. There's what I built. What I selling built, features. <laughs> exactly. And talking about features, talking about functionality, talking about even technical aspects of um, of what is being built, but a lot less of why. Why did this get built? What was the reason reason driving the the um, the product development? Um, what's the human insight and the human narrative there? Um, I think that's been lost in the sauce a bit in the web three part. And that's okay. Cause that's just what naturally happens. Like if you go back and look at, at uh, you know, early social media, if you go back even further and started to look at like ads from like the thirties, all people would write about is here's what it is. It's not like why you need it or how it fits in your life. Like in, in social media products would go on to like Twitter and just announce like new product, you know, new product. And then as that evolved, they started to figure out like, how do we speak to people in this? And I think that's where we're at in web three right now is um, a lot of brands are, are forgetting that they're having a conversation with people and they're forgetting that the brand is, isn't wholly owned by them. It's owned by the people who use their products and define that relationship. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting to see who starts to realize that as the competition heats up in the next cycle um, and who's well suited to tell that story in a more impactful way. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know if you knew this about me. I worked at a company called user testing uh, before this mm. familiar with them. No, but it's, I, I wasn't even aware that you worked there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, user testing for, for you and for the audience is qualitative you know, research. It's, they call themselves a human insight platform. Right. Mm. Um, and so what it is, is basically the, the ability to watch your dedicated users based on whatever demographics you want and other screening questions you have interact with your product and speak their thoughts out loud. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the, the most popular product was the unmoderated version to replace these long, hard focus groups. Right. Um, but you know, the, then it, mo it modified a little bit into a moderated product where you could basically get on here and I could be talking you through this uh, and whatnot. So I, I think about that when I go there just because I've been there, but I also think about like, when has a brand had a better opportunity to speak to their users than in Web3? They've never owned that relationship or had that ability to communicate before, right? They're all just sitting in your Discord, sitting in your, following your Twitter account, shit posting about your, your NFT collection, whatever that may mean, right? Like that helps the brand sometimes. When my Twitter feed fills with dead fellas stuff, I'm like, oh yeah, it's going great. You know, like, <laughs> right. Uh, right. and then thank you, Twitter algorithm um, <laughs> for feeding me more of my beliefs. Um, but, you know, like I'm wondering like, how do, like how, what, what is it that's missing that is, is keeping these brands from having those conversations with people that are already ecstatic to be a part in there? Now, I know it's quieted a little bit, but for the most part, the big brands, the doodles, uh, the cool cats, the board apes, uh, what have you, the, the dead fellas even, which, you know, in terms of price doesn't rank up to these guys, but like people are still really interested in that brand. Like, yeah. how are they going to start just like having those more in-depth conversations so they can understand the why behind people. I think it's listening. Cause I think they're, I think the people are already saying like why they love the, the different products that they're using in, in web three. It feels like because they have this incentive structure and aligned motives, they're shouting 
they're evangelizing. Yeah, writing uh, Twitter threads why. about it. Yeah, exactly. I think understanding um, and listening to what they're saying there and finding the, the insights that help you develop more product and connection to them is what really matters there. I mean, the, the best ads um, all use the same format and it's where do we fit in people's lives? What problems are we solving? And identify an insight that creates that human connection and then do something creative with that insight. Um, and I just think that people are missing a bit of that framework, um, either experience with that framework or just uh, uh, remembering that that's all that we're doing here is selling a, a human connection between our product and the people. Um, and a lot of that comes from just listening. Yeah, I think I think also if I could just speculate here um, to to touch on an earlier point, but in a totally different way, is how many traditional marketers are working at these brands? <laughs> you know, it's it's. And I'm not saying that like things need to be done the same way, but what I see when I see the communities and I see the terminology and I see the narrative and the framing and like all these brand characteristics and marketing characteristics is I see highly technical. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and maybe unsafe. Right. Uh, and, and the people that are founding them are developers uh, or maybe, uh, you know, designers. Right. Because they're an artist. Right? And, right. and to their credit, they've they've never had even if they wanted to, they've never had to really market themselves that much. Their their creations were their marketing. Right. Totally. Totally. And so which so oh, go ahead, which makes a ton of sense. Like. And that's the way that it usually goes is like they identify one thing, they build a product off of that thing. And usually it means that there's technical people involved. You got to build the product before you can start to grow. Um, so marketers generally come in a little Marketers are always interested in what's happening in technology, right? Like good strategists are always head head first into, into new tech, identifying opportunities within that. But it's not necessarily what the, the company or the product are, are always thinking about. They're solving the problems that are right in front of them. So um, to answer your question, I don't think that there's a lot of like traditional marketers in this space yet. And that's not to say that like they're going to bring traditional thinking. It's going to happen. But what they're really bringing is a tried and true creative process of creating great communication with an audience that becomes, you know, a strengthened brand. And that's what, that's, what's going to start to happen in the next cycle or so. Like the, the last cycle was a lot of hype, which, you know, even talking to my friends who are like into web three that are marketers, they're like, eh, I don't know if I want to, I don't want to get into this. Because, you know, there's so many risks involved on like trying to work with these partners right now because I don't know what's going to be around in two and there's years. there's not a lot of revenue streams, right? Right. Totally that. Totally yeah. that. Like there's a lot of, a lot of uh, um, uh, there's not a lot of businesses that have been built yet. There's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of great theories. There's a lot of good experiences, but there's not scale yet. Um, for a lot of these things, 
but a, a lot of a lot tactics, of, but not, there's a lot of tactics, but not a lot of strategy. It feels like almost yeah, a lot of, and, or just like business strategy. There's a lot of, there's a, there's less like user insights th- that are driving these business decisions, which is where like you start to see marketers come in and, and do that. Like, you know, for every team that I've ever been on, they know what perspective I'm going to come with. Like if we're sitting in a meeting talking about uh, a new product coming out and you have kind of the lead developer talking about how it was built, what was used to build, build it. The product lead might be talking about like, here's the important pieces of the product. Here's what we think people are really going to appreciate. But then my perspective is always like, well, why does, why should people care? What is it? What? And that's what a marketer actually brings to the table is just that, different perspective focused on the users um user experience could be design could be product um i think that's where at least that's where i try to play is like let's talk about the business problems and the solutions we're coming with and how that fits into people's lives and how that might change based off of what we find about where it fits or how it fits into people's lives Makes sense. It's almost like you see yourself as like the, you are the communication vector between these different teams, because ultimately what matters is doesn't matter how good your product is, doesn't matter uh, how useful it is to certain people. If those people don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> right? it's, it's, right. just, it's just like a good marketer is a spokesperson for the people that we're talking to. Um, the voice of the users in the room. Um, that's, that's really what we're, we're looking for. And it's also like uh, a bit of an amalgamation between, you know, the data that you see, the conversations you have in the community, what's happening on social, um, all of those things give you insights on, on how to support a, a product launch a little bit better. Yeah. It's interesting. When you say the word data, I, I, my guest from, you know, this past week was actually, uh, he's building a, a product on flow and he's talking about how there's treasure troves of data on chain. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. And then, you know, the people that buy it on chain. So, you know, that you can acquire other data about these people, but nobody in web three is really bridging that gap in leveraging the data to build better products, to build better strategies, what have you. Yeah, I think uh, we're seeing more of it. Like Dune dashboards are incredible um, for products and projects across all aspects of Web3. Um, we used it heavily at, at Rabbit Hole to analyze um, not only the activity that was going on on our app, but then also what's going on in the ecosystem with the people who are interacting with our app. So we're able to kind of understand like, you know, the impact that we're able to have beyond what they did through, through rabbit hole itself. Um, even like when the activity is happening was one of our bigger insights to shift some of our strategies, which was like, when are, when's the most on-chain activity actually occurring? Um, which was surprising to us, uh, when we found that. So it is why interesting was, to, why, why was ahead. it surprising? Um, I don't want to get into it too much, but it was just happening at a time period that we weren't really expecting. It's, I don't want to get into like the business strategy aspect of, of what we saw and what we decided to do with it. But 
the point being that when we looked at the data, there was some interesting things happening that then shifted the way that we communicated because of when it was happening, um, which is something that, it, that all companies and brands can do now because of the analytics that are happening there. I mean, it, I also think it's really interesting the shift from like, yeah, social data is important, but not as important as looking at what's actually happening on chain. Um, there's a lot of fluff data out there uh, around like um, engagement, for example, or like, you know, everything that sets really high in the awareness part of the, the marketing funnel. Um, but on chain data is, is like, you know, conversion data through and through, like show some real intent, um, can be tracked to uh, uh, lots of different protocols and apps. You can find out a lot about your users through the on-chain data um, rather than having to use uh, third-party data sources from social media platforms and then extrapolating that to find even more about, about the audience. The nice thing about on-chain data is that people are, are opting in and doing it this in a public way. Everyone has access to it, um, which you know is both good and, and bad. I do start to think about like um, data privacy down the road with things like ZK proofs um, and how that's going to change the way that we look at data. But for now, there are some really interesting stories you can tell through the on-chain data, especially to Dune at, at on Dune dashboards. Yeah. Dune's a, Dune is a great product, it's, but it, you bring up an interesting point. And I think about um, before user testing, I was at Marketo. Uh, marketing automation software and yeah. you know marketing attribution the effectiveness of your uh, content marketing campaigns whether people are opening it what what papers they're downloading being able to cater your content because of what they're doing um, you know it wasn't perfect but it was better than what was there before right and now what this is is you've got uh, a very intentional interaction someone signing a transaction most of the time to say, yeah. I am doing this thing, whatever right. that thing can be. Uh, and, and what does that mean about the person? And then the other really cool thing, and I, I agree with you, the, the, the public versus private blockchain data is going to be at the forefront at some point in the very near future. Um, but for now, when everything is completely public, if you have someone's public wallet address, you can go see what else they've done, right? Totally. You can go see uh, what POAPs they've collected. So literally where they've been, right? Yeah. And that may be in the real world. It also may be in, in, uh, in a select metaverse or something like that. Um, but you, you get a, a much clearer picture, in my opinion, for who the person is without knowing exactly who the person is. Exactly. Right? You don't exactly. need their name. And you know, that there's exceptions to that. But like you don't need their name. They can be under a complete anonymity or just pseudonymity. Uh, but you know what they did. So like in the same sense at jump, when I think about your jump tokens, right? If someone is issuing you a jump token because they feel like you did something well and you start to collect a lot of those over time and you have mechanisms to regulate how many jump tokens can be distributed by a certain person, you're starting to build to me a much clearer quality control and resume than you know, hey, I went to the school, look at my job title. Yeah. Over the last yeah. <laughs> and this is a conversation that we talked about quite a bit at at Rabbit Hole. We uh we really started to see the uh the value in what people have done rather than um what they say 
who they say they are or their demographics or their, or any of that. Uh, when you start to think about having uh, um, powerful contributors in your community, that's more important. It's like, what have you done? Where have you, where's your first transaction? What's your last one? Like those types of things become way more interesting as you start to build out um, that audience. Uh, I do think, um, I do think it's going to be really important to, to start to build in some of those privacies, but at the same time, you're in complete control of your data. And so if you want to use multiple wallets, like if privacy is, is a focus for you, like you have a wallet just for your PO apps or you have a wallet just for your NFTs and, you know, keep it completely anonymous. I think multiple wallets is a, is a feature. So being able to um, be in control and, show what you want to show and not show what you don't want to show um, is up to you as a user, which is, which is great. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think in an ideal world and this is not my idea, but um, it is someone else who's much smarter than my, me, but like we now decide who markets to us in a way, right? We can say, share all my data, share all my, my wallet entries, whatever with this company, because I like what they're doing. Right. Yeah. As opposed to, Oh, I signed into Facebook. Now they're tracking me everywhere I'm going. And now they know everything about me and they're sending me things that I'm thinking about <laughs> before I've even spoken about them, right. which I think appeals to a lot of people. We got a long way to go to get there. Totally. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm interested to follow that path for sure. Uh, I I'm thinking now after our conversation uh, is like, I think I need to jump, join the jump community. If I can pass the interview process. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you, you can. Uh, uh, that would be a, a lot of fun. Cause I mean, just, just to be able to address some of these perception problems with, with web three and understanding that there is a lot of value to add from traditional PFP communities, you just got to find a way to bridge that gap and answer the question of how does this survive, right? And it may be, oh, go ahead. I also think that, you know, some of the perception um, issues aren't necessarily worth fighting. Uh, Coming to an understanding that like, there are scams in this space. There's people going to disappear with money. There's hacks of, of bridges, you know, nearly every damn day now. Um, recognizing that, but then also recognizing uh, what you're building and where it fits into people's lives. I think one of the things I'm most proud of while I was at Rabbit Hole was the ability to understand that people are cautiously optimistic about Web3 or not, or they, they're extremely critical. And being able to understand, when we talk about, you know, you mentioned tension, earlier that is some deep cultural tension but tension builds great brands so when you can understand that tension and you can play off of it and you can say and again that's about being empathetic saying like we understand that you're completely scared of web3 like everyone's jumping in everyone's making millions of course that sounds sketchy right and there are scams there are hacks but we're building a product that does this and hope hopefully you know you can find find it reasonable to start to use it because of this reason. Um, I think that that's like an easy, easy intro for lots of Web3 companies. And I expect to see that strategy start to play out a little bit more recently. There was a, uh, there was a, a 
a vi- an ad that came out. Oh man, I, I'm trying to remember the brand. There's this Web three uh, developer, um, uh, like n- not a school, but like the classes and courses on how to get up to date on Web three as a developer. And they created this incredible video. I'll try to find it and send it to you. Yeah, that, yeah we'll put uh, it in the show notes that was just really, really interesting and took the developer's perspective with like a really funny voiceover that immediately connected with every, everyone trying to enter Web3 development. And uh, I think that, that when I find it, that'll be a really good example of sort of what we're talking about when we say um, taking advantage of this tension that people are living within, not trying to fight all of the perceptions. Judo, one of my favorite things to say as a marketer is like, we're not going to fight it. We're going to judo move it. We're going to take that energy. We're going to use it as uh, for our advantage and flip it back onto people in a way that's creative and interesting that shows them that we know what they're going through. We recognize the hesitancies. We recognize their motivations. And therefore, we're going to create some some incredible marketing from that. I love that. It's like a nice balance between understanding that there are just inherent things if you will about this space that like you're not going to be able to avoid you can't avoid scams in regular life right yeah Um, yeah you know like i'm the you know i'm the victim of 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 something called a virtual kidnapping i mean there's some crazy shit out there but that's insane yeah yeah uh, brief aside i guess i'll just expand on that for 30 seconds uh my my wife's phone was called from what per, what looked like her mother's phone uh, in in the middle of the night, and uh, the guy was talking in a very uh, you know provocative voice, uh, basically saying, "I've got your mom here, and I'm going to kill her unless you send me money." Right? And Holy like, shit. I know. And you're it's just two thirty in the morning, so you're like kind of asleep, and you're like, "Is this real? Like, what's going on?" And you see mom on the phone. If you call back the number on the phone afterwards, it called her mom. But what happened was, eventually, I kept calling her mom, and I was like, "This is weird. They haven't mentioned her boyfriend at all." And huh. so eventually, she called me back. She's like, "No, I'm fine." And <laughs> but like apparently, the, the FBI is investigating this. They've been go. They'll just go back to back to back to back. It's all just a play for them, right? Wow. Yeah. Um, but anyways, a quick aside but, on that. I mean, I mean, you're, you're exactly right though. There's a reason why all of our phones now have scam likely across yeah. it because scams are pervasive. The problem mm-hmm. is that people don't understand or trust the technology or movement. We haven't done a good job of explaining the benefits, the reasons why they blame the should be getting involved. They'll blame the, te- blame the technology, but then they'll also point at reasons why they shouldn't trust it even more instead right. of realizing that. We're never going to get rid of scams completely. Like social engineering is going to be a thing forever. That's going to always be there as, as long as people uh, need to find a way to get funds in creative ways, that's going to be a part of it. Uh, But that's, that comes with the growing pains. Like, you know, when the internet first started uh, you go back and watch some of the news coverage on the internet or social media when it was starting up and it was all like the deepest, societal fears all for child porn (laughs) right right it's uh you're gonna get kidnapped you're you're talking to strangers that you shouldn't be talking to and like uh engaging with people just like really what it shows is the same basic fears that humans have you know of safety security financial freedom etc maslow's hierarchy of needs here (laughs) exactly exactly 
they come up in in the same issues as new technology emerges the same thing happens over and over again the same reason why like we why would we be why would we want to find my friends on on iphone you know yeah. when that feature first launched it was like no way would i tell my <laughs> friends where i'm at but now it's like a pretty common place to have like your friend's location and be like oh i'm i'm nearby now and people can actually see the benefit of that or you know they've even added more tracking capabilities with like the apple tag that you can just like keep in your purse and like you know etc so i think it's just signs of an early stages of technology adoption is like first we're going to stress test this by uh, expelling all of our human anxieties about the possible technology in there and once again, to circle back on it, brands that are built understanding that reality will find more ways to connect with those people. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, we're nearing the top of the hour, so I'm going to get to my traditional uh, closing questions. Uh, the first one being, how do you describe Web3? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think I've spent so much time like, talking about web three that getting it down to a really concise um form is is getting harder for me as it gets more expansive in my world um but i think the simplest way that i tell people about web three is that it's all about ownership it's having ownership and agency of the things that you use on the internet every day the companies that you decide to participate with to um give them your money um, the communities that you're a part of, um, instead of it all going to some unknown third party, uh, you have skin in the game and some ownership on, on what you're building. And I think if we all believe that function of Web3 and that sort of mission, then um, you can start to explore and find out other ways and other meanings from it. Yeah, I think that's really key. And, and ownership is a common word that comes up, but one that doesn't come up as, as commonly, but is just as important uh, is really begets ownership is agency and understanding what that means. Uh, and, and luckily, with my legal training, I, I have spent a lot of time on what agency is, um, right. but like understanding how the agency dynamic changes between a mm -hmm. brand and uh, an NFT owner or a fungible token owner or just a community member, a contributing community member is is essential because that that's how you start to see the shift. Right. Right. That's how you see the incentive realignment uh, in, the, in the contributions you can make. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so my final question is always uh, forward looking. Um, and mm -hmm. I know that you're you're ex you have a ton of opportunities. I know that you're looking into and stuff. So. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. Where do you see yourself and Web3 in the next six to 12 months? And then where do you see yourself in Web3 in the next five to 10 years? Wow. it's <laughs> a good one. Um, in the next six to 12 months, I hope to be a part of a team that is bringing a, um, a Web3 brand to the masses. Um, something that is actually native web three isn't an exchange. Um, so starting to see some breakthrough of some of these brands done in creative ways. Uh, and I think that kind of tells you my idea of where web three will be in the next six, 12 months, which is that we will start to see some breakthrough brands um, that get people involved. 
in in really unique ways. And then five to ten years, boy, uh, I don't know where I'll be, but the way that I think uh, this is all going to play out is that we're going to see a major shift in what the internet is to us um, from from today until then. I think on the technical side, it's a complete rebuild of a lot of the tech stack, especially coming from like, you know, you worked on Marketo and a bunch of uh, different marketing tech stacks. All of those things are going to have to be rebuilt. Like I kind of look at what, what Oracle has built and, you know, Facebook's already repositioning for, for this new, new world. And um, there's a lot of things that we rely on today for the internet uh, that feel, you know, built on the same sort of technology that the internet's had forever. Um, And so in the next five to 10 years, I think it's going to look very different in the way that we use the internet, own the internet, you know, what a browser looks like, like, you know, five to 10 years, we're probably, we're definitely going to start to see more virtual reality become more of a mainstay augmented reality be, be important here. So I think the way that we actually engage with the internet is going to shift and what it looks like all the way down to what it's built on is going to look very different because if you look at a lot of web three right now, um, it's built for desktop. Um, we're, we're back to using browsers. It feels like kind of, uh, early stages of web two, you know, um, where people are, are, it's even like rudimentary sort of website strategy. Um, but in five to 10 years, that's going to change a lot as we, the, the tech stack we're building on and the, the way that we're accessing the internet changes too. So uh, it's not a very clear vision of what it looks like in five to 10, but I think those are the core components that I'm keeping an eye on um, and how that changes. Cause you know, for me as a marketer, how all those things change just impact the way that we tell brand stories. They don't change the structure of brands. They're still the same thing. It's still a relationship between a company that has a product and the users of that product in between there is the brand. And there's lots of different ways that that gets defined. Yeah. I love that. What a great way to close. I appreciate you coming on Brennan and I hope that I can have you back on one day and maybe, maybe join the the jump community with you. Dude, absolutely. We'll get you into jump. No doubt. All right. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for tuning in to web three with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.